This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. On this edition of the podcast, I'm joined by composer Joby Talbot. I came to be a composer because I really, really, really love music. Music that, that speaks to me, I just feel this absolute love for. I can't, really, I, guess, I can't really think of another word other than love. We'll talk about the many different compositional hats he gets to wear, writing operas, ballets, concert music, and film scores. And we'll talk about his upcoming project, commissioned by L.A. Opera and premiering on Off Grand, a new score for the 1931 German expressionist film by Carl Theodor Dreyer called Vampire. Joby Talbot was born in Wimbledon in London, so naturally I began our interview by asking him about tennis. And he said he's never actually visited the All England Club. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, you know, I was just an angry teenager, and you know, <laughs> people would ask the directions to, it, and I didn't, I didn't even really know where it was. And we, we, I didn't, we never lived in Wimbledon. Wimbledon's posh, and we, I had a music scholarship to this posh school. We didn't live there. We lived um, places that, you know. Yeah, it's places where, I mean, people who are listening to this probably won't know London, but, you know, if you, if you have to describe someone as being near Croydon, then that's not a good thing. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like you live in the most, sort of the most obscure outer suburbs of South London. And, uh, yeah, for people growing up in Harlem, boxing is the way out. People growing up in Mitcham, Surrey, composition was obviously the way out for me. <laughs> when did you know that uh, composition was a thing that, that you were interested in, had talent for? I started, I mean, I played my, I mean, this is, you know, it makes me sound like this insufferable little nerd, but I played my first composition in public when I was nine. It wasn't very good, um, but everybody was very nice about it, and I guess I kind of, you know, I, I was always sort of, I think, you know, writing music seemed more fun than practicing other people's music, mm -hmm. um, and then I seriously got into it, I suppose, in my in my mid-teens, and it was, it was like a kind of Damascene moment where I... I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, this is what I want to do. And um, I never really looked back. I mean, I didn't, I don't think I ever had the uh, audacity to think that I might actually make a living out of it, but I knew it was what I wanted to do whenever I could possibly do it. Um, and, you know, I'm just incredibly lucky that that is what I have to do every day now. What do you remember about those early pieces? You say it wasn't very good, but um, is could you look back at it now and say, oh yeah, I, this is sort of a you know, a DNA strand of what I am writing now, or is it just totally, totally different? It's funny, actually. I, I um, this, this piece, Vampire, has come real sort of connections to pieces I was writing at the beginning of my career, uh, not least because I started out writing um, a lot of silent movie scores for the British Film Institute, which then fed into everything I've subsequently done. And, and so it does feel much, sort of much like coming home. And, and uh, yeah, there is, I mean, you, you know, you're, your compositional DNA, um, you know, really is, is you know, it's it's what you start out with. I think if you're really being kind of honest to what you want to say, and um, you know, the music that I loved when I was a was a teenager and you know, growing up is still the music that I love now. Um, I mean, I know more music than I did then, but you know, still I keep coming back to the same composers. And who are they? Oh, you know, Sibelius, Stravinsky, Mahler, Shostakovich, uh, Tchaikovsky. And then, you know, and then, you know, a lot of, kind of you know, Berg, <sighs> you know, the usual suspects. <laughs> <laughs> I went to hear um, 
Sibelius Five, um, Sam Rattle doing it with the LSO in London a couple of weeks ago, and I hadn't heard it live, you know, in in forever, um, and it was just you know, remarkable how that kind of music is just imprinted on my soul. You know, mm. I know every tiny detail, detail of it so extraordinarily well. And everything I, I sit down to write is kind of informed by all that music I love. I mean, you know, that I came to be a composer because I really, really, really love music. And, uh, you know, not just classical music. You know, I played in a rock band for years. And I, you know, I have a secret passion for funk. And I, I just, I, I, music that that speaks to me, I just feel this this absolute love for. I can't really, I, guess, I can't really think of another word other than, love and and um that's why i do what i do i think mm. you mentioned simon rattle what does it mean that he's now in london with the lso no oh, it's great i mean london is you, growing up in london it's funny we we always think of ourselves sort of in kind of negatively negatively in relation to other places and i sort of grew up thinking that you know the musical capitals of the world and you know vienna and paris and you know central europe generally but actually, I mean, the you know the place in the world where you, you have probably the the highest standard, or at least in terms of in terms of reach and depth of of um, music making, um, is is well the two I suppose are London and, and L A. and then and then I guess New York as well. But you know, in London we have you know so many world class orchestras. I mean, the LSO, the Philharmonia, the RPO, the BBC Symphony Orchestra, the LPO. You know, and then and then and then we get into chamber orchestras, and then and then when you start looking, I mean, it's unbelievable the wealth of musicianship we have in London. Mm-hmm. And it's something which, and I mean, don't get me started on choirs. I mean, you know, the finest choirs in the world, and we don't really realise it. It's not what we it's not what we think of when we think of what's great about about London. So yeah, the fact that Rattler's come back and, and, and is is now running the LSO is you know it's obviously a great coup for them, and and the orchestra is sounding amazing. And then we got Essa Pecker at the Philharmonia, you know, just across the road. And I mean, you know, and I just worked with the BBC Symphony Orchestra over the summer uh, with my, my new guitar concert I wrote for the Proms. I mean, and they're an incredible world-class orchestra as well. I mean, it's yeah, yeah the wealth of of um, the wealth of talent there is amazing. And then we don't really have a decent concert hall, which is kind of bizarre. <laughs> <laughs> Yet, but he's working on it. Yeah, he's working on it. But I don't know. I think there's. I think uh, yeah, it wouldn't be my choice of thing to spend <laughs> money on. I guess. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we get by. Of course, we did have an amazing concert hall, but it rather, yes, it got blown to smithereens during the Blitz. And, uh, you know, other other people would have maybe rebuilt it. But no, we <laughs> built an ugly office block in its place. Uh, and now we don't have it. But it's interesting that you say that um, Londoners maybe don't even realize what a great orchestra town London is, because, you know, we have visiting orchestras come to the West Coast, and uh, I do a lot of pre-concert talks um, for these groups when they come in. And, you know, invariably, in every season, there will be not one, but at least two, maybe three or four different orchestras coming from London. And so I always start my talk by, you know, just sort of listing off, as you did, you know, the great orchestras that are from London. And I, I counted it up once, and I think the total number of, like, really fine orchestras, including the chamber orchestras, St. Martin in the Fields and and those guys as well, um, it's either, like, 44 or 48 <laughs> orchestras. And it always, you know, you get a gasp from the audience, like, oh, my God, you know, almost 50 orchestras. It's a theater town, but, you know, it, it's an or- it really is an orchestra town. 
Yeah, it's true. And those play I mean the, the those players are playing all kinds of different music all the time as well. That's the other thing. I mean, you know, Berlin obviously has a great orchestra, but I think those musicians tend to be playing more of a more of a, a cogent simple single rep whereas you know London orchestral players will be doing you know you know LSO under sign rattle one minute and then doing a you know a film session the next or you know all kinds of different music um you know and then we've got the two opera orchestras I mean that I've worked an awful lot with the the Royal Opera, opera House Orchestra I mean they're incredible I mean, those guys, they just turn on a dime. I mean, they show up one day and play a score by, you know, me and the next, you know, they'll be playing, you know, Varg the next night and Tchaikovsky the next, and they're not missing a beat. I mean, it's incredible. Yeah. It's such a vibrant scene, it really is, and, and more and more good young players coming through all the time. You know, I've, I, you know, every, almost every other concert I go to, I think, well, that's, you know, I can't imagine that as any other orchestra in London as good as that. And then you go to the next one, it's like, well, they're as good as that. And then, you know, it's this, this constant rivalry. We're, we're incredibly lucky. I always wish we were a little bit more um, aware of how lucky we are. Yeah. Well, we'll keep talking about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, when did uh, film scoring come into play for you? The first movies I scored were silent movies. I scored, uh, back in the late 90s, I scored uh, the Alfred Hitchcock thriller, The Lodger the BFI and then I did another wonderful film called The Dying Swan by Yevgeny Bauer from 1916 Russian film um, for their the, you know like video DVD releases you know these a lot of these films didn't have scores written for them and you know they, if they want to they're going to put it out there they need somebody to write a score and you know they I was, you know they, I was asked and absolutely loved it learned so much especially about writing narrative music generally but especially writing narrative music for ballet which is something I've done a lot of but mm -hmm. um, by that time I'd already written some um, music for a, a British TV comedy series called The League of Gentlemen which was a huge hit back in the 90s um, won the BAFTAs and the uh, Golden Rose of whatever it is for best comedy and all this stuff and um, it was very sort of had very sort of cinematic kind of pretensions that that show it was you know it was a little tv comedy but they, they a lot of the scenes they wanted to kind of make it feel like it was a big kind of epic cinematic uh tableau um and so even though we had like a very minimal budget we you know we we, we managed to make it you know go in that sort of direction and um then I was asked to, by my very good friend Garth Jennings to score the um, Disney Spyglass movie um, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And that would have been sometime in the mid-2000s. And, uh, yeah, and then, and then after that I just got, you know, I got a lot of offers for, you know, films, worked with a lot of cool directors, did a lot. I was doing at one point maybe, you know, three, four movies a year, squeezing my classical commissions in in between, you know, whenever I could. And, uh, but I, you know, the thing about writing movie scores for something like me is that you, you know, you really are kind of in the lap of the gods when you sign up to a movie, it's a, it's a wonderful collaborative experience. And, um, you know, I've really loved some of the films I've done. I just recently did, um, the, uh, Illumination Entertainment, um, animated movie Sing, which was just such a dream of a project to work <laughs> on. And then to come here to LA, it was the first time I come to LA and, and worked in the studio here mm -hmm. with, um, just incredible musicians, some of whom play in the opera orchestra. Yeah, I recognised a whole lot of them from when <laughs> uh, when the um, National Ballet of Canada did my um, Alice in Wonderland ballet here. Yeah. yeah, it was nice to see some friendly faces. <laughs> and of course, I, I worked a lot with the Calder Quartet, uh, who are based here, and they and they were they were, I think, all four. Some of them anyway were playing in the um, in the orchestra for Sing. But anyway, I I, I 
you're, I mean, the thing with, as I say, with films is that when you're signed up to a movie, you're basically on the project till it's finished, which means it's very hard to then plan, you know, what, what comes next. Um, you know, the job will basically just kind of expand or contract depending on how it's going. Um, and, and it's right. sort of like all day work, right? I mean, it's, you can't yeah. squeeze other things in when you're on that kind of a project. Well, you might be able to, but then you might not. Um, <laughs> and the other thing I find is, you know, the, the better a project's going, the easier the whole thing is. You know, the, you know, the edit settles down early on because it's kind of working and everybody likes the music that you're throwing at it. And you have a great dialogue with the director who's you know, you've got his full attention and, you know, the whole things. And then, of course, he comes out as a monumental smash. You know, everybody makes a ton of money. It's just <laughs> great. Everybody hears about the movie, you get hired again. Because the converse is you start on something and it's like a, oh, dear, things aren't going well. I always liken it to like if you're like, you know, doing a complicated kind of travel itinerary around the country and, you know, if your first flight is a bit late, it's like the butterfly effect. It's like your whole, you know, the next week of your life is ruined. And uh, it's a bit like that, you know, like the film isn't really working for whatever reason. And of course, so many great movies just have some sort of missing ingredient. That means that somehow everything doesn't really gel together. Maybe some of the casting, you know, individually, the, they were great actors, but the dynamic between them somehow doesn't quite catch fire or... You know, or maybe there was maybe there's a mismatch between the the, the, the director's vision and the producer's vision, or maybe in the, I don't know. The million and one things can go wrong with the film, and because the music is put on last, it often ends up being like the sticking plaster, the thing that's meant to kind of somehow fix what's <laughs> wrong with the. You know, we're not going to go re reshoot all those scenes with George Clooney. You know, that's going to cost you know all the money in the world. So you know, instead we'll just you know, the composer can rewrite that scene again and again and again. I mean, I think the number, mm. the maximum number of rewrites I've ever done on a single scene would be like 75. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah, you don't mind doing rewrites if you think that, that it's taking the movie in a, in, a, in a good direction. But, of course, they're all very time-consuming. And meanwhile, you've got a whole ton of other projects kind of, like, looming behind waiting for you to get started. And uh, now I tend to do these big classical, you know, full-length operas, ballets, you know, they need time and they need my full undivided attention so I can't take as many movies on as I used to but I, as I say I still do the odd one I've got one coming up I'm doing Sing 2 uh, you know, I think I start on that soon um, but yeah I'm not I'm not just um, I'm not taking as many as I used to because yeah. I've got so many other things of my own to do which is yeah, which is great yeah but that collaborative um, process in writing a film score, I always find so interesting. Um, is it comparable to any other type of, of compositional activity that you would have someone who you're, it's almost like you're, um, you know, you're sending your work to someone and they're, you know, they're saying, okay, this is good. Let's use this. This isn't what we want in this space. Let's change it. I don't really feel like that happens in other genres, maybe opera and ballet to a lesser extent but it, it does in ballet if you're working with a choreographer on a big um especially as i say I've, you know done these big narrative projects you you know you have to realize that you're writing music to serve the project it's no good me saying well i mean that fugue is just marvelous you know if, <laughs> if it doesn't tell the story as it needs to be told in a certain scene um or if it's undanceable to or whatever then you, you know, have to change it but but yes the dynamic is very different you're not a hired hand you're you're a part of the creative team and your voice you're hired as an artist. Um, I think in movies, often you're hired as a um, as a craftsman, and sometimes you're hired more as a, just a sort of technician, really. Mm. Especially these days, where you know, you know, the whole process of temping a, a, a movie 
where they're putting other people's music up against it to kind of see what works and 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 then screening those those you know cuts with with the temp score to to audiences and getting their kind of feedback um you know often they really just want the the composer to i mean i'm lucky in that i don't work with directors who are like this but like uh, you hear horror stories about you know composers being forced to write music that's so close to the temp that really they're just it's just pastiche and sometimes they get into trouble because it's too close yeah. or you're alex north and stanley kubrick says whoops i like all the classical music so sorry we're not going to use what yeah. you wrote and then doesn't tell him till right. the premiere and he shows up with his family and uh, I know how terrible. I don't know if Kubrick was the easiest person to work with. <laughs> Some great movies, but uh, yeah, I know. And and you can be. I mean, I worked on a movie um, a few years ago that was uh, that went through you know all kinds of you know complex um, permutations. You know, and I wrote a score that the director was really thrilled with, but then the film got like recut, taken out of his hands, and recut and was sold to one one. <sighs> one studio that bought it and then they didn't release it and then they sold it on and when, finally when it was when it was finally released I, mean, I went to the premiere here in LA and um, you know there was there was one bit I mean they cut the sh- cut my music to shreds and um, they'd one bit where they actually had two different pieces of music playing simultaneously <laughs> but actually I mean I was so far you know years had gone by and actually I, I didn't really mind at all I was like <laughs> fine I mean you have to understand that if you're writing music for you know it's not about you it's about the film yeah. and whatever whatever works you know so yeah, but I like collaborating. I'm, I'm, you know, I like to get kind of feedback. I like to feel that I'm, you know, pulling, pulling, you know, together with, um, you know, like-minded, you know, fun, creative people to make something cool, you know. And uh, you know, I, I don't really, you know, it's, sometimes I write pieces where it's simply just me and, and nobody has kind of any say in it except for me. But, but even then, I want to get feedback from the players I'm writing for. You know, I really like writing obviously music that expresses what i want to say and comes from the heart but also music that that is is a gift to the to the performers and hopefully to the audience you know i'm writing a song cycle at the moment and you know i'm just constantly thinking you know what can i give these wonderful singers that's just going to allow them to shine you know i just wrote this guitar concerto as i say and i'm trying to give something some virtuosic piece of you know music to the to this wonderful soloist so that he can just you know stand up in front of an audience or in the case of a classical guitarist sit down in front of the <laughs> audience you know and just wow them with his with his genius yeah so i'm that's at least that's where i am and maybe when i'm maybe when i'm old and gray and grumpy i'll be a little <laughs> bit more you know just, you know just writing it for me but but at the moment it's definitely for yeah. the, it's for everybody but i love how that sort of um shatters this sort of myth from the romantic era romantic times of the the solitary you know artistic mystical genius locked in his the room by himself communing with the the muses and then producing this you know masterpiece in total isolation i mean that's not how it happened either but we seem to have that that perception and so i you know to hear you say i I love collaborating and i like talking to people about what i'm making i love that addition to the narrative of how music gets made yeah i think it's something that is important you know that you know people young people trying to kind of write music realizes that it, it's it's scary to start sharing your your stuff with with people because they might come back and say i don't like it change it you know but but you you have to be you know <laughs> once i was working on a an album with a singer who will remain nameless and um uh, they were doing a take and uh it wasn't really very good and the um the engineer 
I was sitting listening and the singer in question said, how is that? And the engineer said, great, great, let's just go for another. And then without thinking about it, he realised he was closing the door of the live room to the corridor with his foot as he said, it was great, great, let's go for another. He closes the thing because he doesn't want anybody walking by to hear how bad it sounds. And then suddenly you're like, yeah, but it's going on a record. Everyone's going to hear how bad it sounds, <laughs> you know. So you have to be, you have to be okay to share. You have to realize that this is not, you know, your secret thing. You're you're writing it. To, I mean, fine, write music to be your secret thing, keep it in your top drawer, and no one can ever hear it if you like. But you've got to realize that at some point everyone's going to hear. So they may as well hear earlier rather than later. It is it is scary to to share something that's unfinished with people, but you just got to get through that. Yeah. When did you hook up with Ellie Opera for the first time? So I wrote a, a full-length narrative ballet with the wonderful choreographer Christopher Wielden, which was a co-commission between the Royal Ballet in London and the uh, National Ballet of Canada, based on Alice in Wonderland. And it was a big success in London. It's I think it's on its like sixth revival now, and you know it's it's, like it's become a, a sort of staple, firm favorite of that company. And likewise in in Canada, and um, National Ballet of Canada actually toured it around the country. They could tour. Took it to New York, took it to the Kennedy Center in Washington, and and they and they brought it here to the Music Center. And uh, Christopher Kolsch, um came and heard it, and um, basically was incredibly nice about it. He's, he really he thought it was a, a really interesting piece of music theater and a marriage of, of of narrative with music, and thought it was sort of different from other stuff that he'd um, he'd heard he'd been listening to people do lately. You know, he gave me the impression that you know he'd really like to work with me on something one day. And I've been down and seen many productions in the intervening years here, and I've just always just been, you know, totally blown away. I mean, the quality of of production in this house. I mean, the orchestra's incredible, the singers incredible, productions are just amazing, and the the vision of of you know Christopher and his team bringing such interesting stuff to LA. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, it's just a world-class company and you know, I've been dying to work here. <laughs> so when um Christopher said that there was this, you know, the the, the scary movie um, Halloween project they've been doing for the last few years off grand at the at the Ace, uh you know, would I be interested? I was like, would I? Um so yeah, that's how it happened. Nice. Nice. It's a unique um, aspect of this company, I think, to have you know, kind of the the main stage life, and also this off-grand series, which can be anything. It can be new opera, chamber opera, um, and like you say, this this Halloween um, scary film series, which um, has had just such fabulous success, uh, kind of makes sense in this town and also in that venue. But it is kind of funny too. Like, what's an opera company doing commissioning? a new score for an old silent uh, not silent but but an old film yeah well it has got a singer in so it's a bit right. operatic and it's certainly operatic <laughs> and it is i mean you know it's it's all i mean what is opera it's a combination of of, of narrative and music i mean this is you know this gesamtkunstwerk of of pulling every conceivable way of telling a story from the from the live music being played and the staging and the singing and the acting and the costumes and everything together um to make this um you know this, you know, mind-blowing, immersive theatrical experience. I mean, that, that to me is when opera really comes into its own. Um, you know, and the, I think this, um, I think what I've written for Vampire is meant to be kind of like that, which I want people to be just absolutely sucked into this extraordinary film. No pun intended. Sucked in. <laughs> 
no pun intended, but yes, sucked in uh, to this film, which is a, which is a wonderful film, and it's a very um, it was a it was a big flop, famously when it was when it first came out, and and subsequently it's been kind of you know amongst the sort of film cognoscenti, it's it's regarded as one of the, the early masterpieces of the of the the horror genre. Mm-hmm. So this is 1931 uh, German film. Yes, 1931 32 mm-hmm. German film by the uh, Danish. Auteur director Carl Theodor Dreyer, who um, I suppose is most famous for his um, his silent movie The Passion of Joan of Arc, which was the one film before Vampire, um, another flop, which now everyone re- recognises as a consummate masterpiece. And uh, yeah, I I didn't want to do a sort of schlocky kind of vaudeville melodramatic kind of let's all sort of laugh at the at the you know the the kind of go- gooning to camera uh, <laughs> type of early horror movie. Um, I, when I did um, the Hitchcock, 1926 Hitchcock Silent, The Lodger, I was very aware that, you know, growing up watching silent movies on TV, and they were, you know, growing up in England in the 70s, 80s, there was a lot of kind of just filling time on TV, so they would shove silent movies on there. And and they always play them too fast, so all the characters are running around like ants with, with sort of rather sort of silly kind of score, and it's almost sort of making a mockery of it, you know? Um, and with with that Hitchcock film, I really wanted to try and make a score which made it as scary as I as I imagine it would originally have been. Um, and it was the same with this. I wanted to try to kind of make the film as as impactful as I feel the director intended. Um, and as I started work, I began to, I well, I thought at least. I hope at least that I began to have a real sense of of what he was trying to do because it's a very peculiar film, and I don't think that the sc- there was a score written for it um, at the time by Wolfgang Zeller, and um, I don't think, and I could be wrong, but I don't think that Wolfgang Zeller really got what Carl Theodor Dreyer was trying to say with this movie. Um, sometimes the music works okay. But a lot of the time, he's writing quite generic, melodramatic, expressionistic, orchestral score. You know, the kind of score you could imagine on any other <laughs> film that came out of Germany at that point in history. But this film is not like those other films. This film is deeply weird. It's, it's, it's very strangely, hypnotically, almost hallucinatory hermetic was a word that I, I heard somebody use about it it's Dreyer had that you know when he was asked what he felt you know was the essence of a, of a horror movie I mean this is the early days of horror movies I mean you know like Nosferatu had come out and Dracula and the cabinet of Dr. Caligari and these these movies but Dreyer said his idea of a horror movie was like you know a family sitting in a room having a conversation everything seems normal but there's a dead body in the next room so something is off. You can't put your finger on what it is, but something is definitely not right. And he tries to achieve this by doing things like putting the camera in an impossible position. So there'll be like a point of view shot, somebody coming down the stairs. So you see the person looking at some, looking up the stairs, and then you see the character coming down the stairs. But you realize that where he's put the camera is there's no way that the character whose point of view it's meant to be could be actually seeing it from that angle. Hmm. It's little things that you don't you don't notice them, but they all contrive to just put everything just like a weird slant mm. it's like you can't quite work out what's going on but it's like you know this is no, nothing is right and then there's other things i mean like weird narrative things where you know impossible things happen 
you know, it can be little things like like a key turning in a lock, like almost supernaturally, except it's it's not meant to be supernatural. And there's one bit where a character comes through the door and he's not he's not he's just a character. He's not meant to have kind of supernatural powers and nothing is ever alluded to that later on, but somehow he manages to to turn a key in a lock from the wrong side of the door. <laughs> and then and then bits where, you know, characters will literally split in the screen. And one half of them walks off in one direction and the other half walks off in the other. And it's never really explained why. And people watching themselves. I mean, there's this amazing sequence towards the end of the film where the main character, Alan Gray, watches his own funeral. It's never explained why he's watching his own funeral. And you're left to kind of try and work out what's that all about yourself. And so I was trying to really capture the, the total strangeness and the seriousness of this as well. I mean, you know, this is going to be like a Halloween event. I'm sure everyone's going to show up expecting to have a jolly good party. <laughs> I hope they do. <laughs> that wasn't really what I was thinking about when I wrote this score. That's so... Um, gosh, your description is just... Uh, that's the essence to me of, you know, what makes a really good, disturbing, horror, psychological, messed up film is just like, wait a minute, what's going on? So you must have a lot then to play off and and just, you know, be able to create really awesome moments in the score then. I hope so. I mean, I've, I've, I've really kind of gone to town making this as, 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 as weird as, as possible. I mean, just really kind of I don't know. It, I, to me, anyway, I mean, it, I, I I love how it seems to have the way I've approached it seems to have made sense of the nonsense of the film. Um, also, I've done things like uh, Dreyer was was trying to do imaginative and innovative things with sound effects, which hadn't really been done before. But evidently, he's he's incredibly limited by the available technology at the time. So there's a scene, for example, where there's this phantom dog. There's a, we can hear the dog, but we can't see the dog. And when Alan Gray, the main character, you know, he's listening to the dog, looking for it, he can't see it. it doesn't appear to be. It's in the room, but it's not in the room. When he asks somebody about it subsequently, they go, "What are you talking about? What dog?" So it's like one of those sort of chilling, spooky moments. But he uses a dog sound effect. Well, the dog sound effect goes, <laughs> and it's the same chunk of audio again and again. Oh, so yeah. this dog goes. Row, 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 row. It's like not very scary. <laughs> so I've replaced that with like a really horrible dog growling, found some 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 sample of, 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 of sort of distressed dog whining, and then put it through different effects. Combine that with the with crackle that I've taken, audio crackle I've taken from elsewhere in the film where there's no dialogue or music, to try to create try to create what I feel Dryer was trying to do in the first place. Which is just make this weird, dreamy, slow. I mean, Dry was really renowned for his camera work, which has an interesting ramification on on this particular movie. He he conceived the movie as a silent, and of course, you know, silent movies are famous for their wonderful camera work. Think of those Buster Keaton, Charlie Chaplin movies, and, and Dry's movies from when it, the silent era. The camera's moving around all over the place. Incredible, incredibly interesting camera work. But of course, those cameras were enormous, great big metal objects. They made a lot of noise when you moved them. So suddenly you're recording dialogue on a soundstage. You can't move the camera. Mm. So Dreyer's way around that was basically, we'll post-sync the dialogue. We'll, we'll, we'll ADR the dialogue later. It'll all be fine. But of course, there wasn't 
the technology to ADR the dialogue. Say, they weren't doing that back <laughs> they then. They weren't doing that So he gets around it mostly by getting his his uh, actors to to basically look away whenever they have a line, or cover their mouth, or <laughs> grow a big moustache or something, so we can't really see their lips moving. So the, the number of scenes where there's dialogue which actually has to be properly ADR'd are quite are quite few and far between, and uh, with slightly patchy results. Sometimes they uh, yeah they manage to kind of get it and they lip sync quite well. Other times, not so much. Yeah. Anyway, so his so he, he he managed to keep his very innovative experimental camera work going, and and the camera dreamily moves through these spaces, and uh, yeah, from the weird point of view, and it's beautiful. I mean, every fr- I mean, you know, it's 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 no wonder that he's you know he's so revered by filmmakers because every every frame is just a work of art. Yeah. It's so beautiful. So that's, I mean, that's, it's not a schlock, scary horror movie by any means. There's no crack, cracking thunder and wah-ha-ha-ha. It's all very languid and dreamy and hypnotic and slowly evolving and just kind of spooky and weird. Yes. Yeah, and all the better for it. Yeah. You wonder what he would have done with a GoPro. He'd have loved a GoPro. <laughs> We go back in time and give Carl Head or Dreyer a GoPro. I mean, what would he have done with Steadicam? I mean, you know, yeah. he would have. You know, he did make more movies later. I mean, he made he made another um, bunch of movies and um, after a hiatus after after Vampire and the, and the war and everything. But post war, he did make some movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, you know, but he was a, you know, I think fundamentally he was he was you know a slightly overlooked artist till after his death. And uh, now, because we realise how wonderful he was. Um, and Vampire is just—it's just got so much good stuff about it. It's—it's—it's just—it's just just amazing. And I've kept so I've kept. I mean, this is a big decision I have to reach because it's—it's it's not a silent, but it's sort of nearly a silent. So as I say, he conceived as it as a silent, conceived of it as a silent film to begin with. Uh, evidently, he can get it funded as a silent because you know as soon as talkies came in, no one was interested in making silence anymore. So um, he sort of rather desultorily <laughs> put in eighty lines of dialogue. Mostly spoken, as I say, from behind big moustaches or turned away from camera. And then he had to record those lines of dialogue in English, French, and German, with an eye to the international market. I mean, it brings you, I mean, I remember I can't remember which silent movie maker it was, but um, was asked, you know, was he was he looking forward to making talkies? And he said, "What? And alienate nine tenths of my audience? Why would I want to do that? Because of course, you know, the silent movies had a universal um, market. You could you could you know you could screen them anywhere in the world, and everyone would get it." Uh, as soon as it's in English, well, that rather limits you to Anglophone countries, unless you're going to do as Dreyer did, how to do it in German and and in French. But yes, I mean the the thing was not a was not a great success from that point of view. The English version is lost. I think they may the French version may be around. We've worked with the German version, so he has these eighty lines of dialogue, and some of the, some of those lines of dialogue are quite dispensed. It's funny actually. When you've got any eighty lines of dialogue, you'd think you want to make them all count, but so many of the lines of dialogue <laughs> are just completely un- inconsequential. Over there, quick, hurry, that kind of thing. You know, stuff you really don't need to be told, you can see. Um, but there's, some of it is so beautiful. There's very few actual professional actors in this film. Mostly he used um, uh, just local people from the village that he was shooting in near Paris. And the lead, um, Alan Gray, is played by somebody called Julian West, who's, that wasn't their real name at all. Their real name was Baron Nicholas de Gunsberg, and they were the producer of the film, a rich German aristocrat. <laughs> and when they were trying to fund it and, you know, trying to cast a big name lead, evidently that didn't work out. So so good old Baron Nicholas stepped in and I think does a rather 
It's an interesting performance. He seems a little bit half asleep, but he's a kind of compelling, he's a compelling leading man. You know, it's funny when you're working so intently on on any kind of movie. I mean, you you know, you you start to feel you have a kind of personal relationship going on with the characters, you know, watching them so much. And I, I kind of do like uh, I do like um, Baron Nicholas's um, Alan Gray, but the uh, the one professional actress who is amazing was um, Sibylla Schmitz, um, who went on to have a very tragic life and and died from suicide in the I think in, in the fifties, became a drug addict. And, but she plays um, Leon, who is the the the, vamp, the vampire's victim. An incredibly beautiful woman, very strange-looking woman, and an amazing actor. I mean, there's a scene in it where she she where she speaks. She says, "Ich bin verdammt, I'm damned," and she says it in such a way it's absolutely chilling. And for that line alone, I was like. I'm going to have to keep the dialogue. Because you could quite easily do, screen this as a silent and not keep any of the dialogue. But I was intent that I wasn't going to. So that led me there. I was like, well, how am I going to keep the dialogue and not keep the original music? And I thought, well, maybe I can somehow work around it. And, and, I, and I have managed to, but it wasn't easy. Because, um, you know, often, often obviously, there's, there's music all over the dialogue. So you have to think, well, how do, I, how do I do that? You can't... How are you going to dig that dialogue out? And somehow dispense with the the music that's all over it um do you write into the music that's there on the track already or? i i basically cut very close around the lines of dialogue um and then as i say put sort of atmos but crackle found from elsewhere because it's a terribly degraded audio track as well so i've taken i've taken sort of crackle and tried to uh, around from elsewhere in the film where there's no music or dialogue and it becomes like a symphony of crackle. There's an awful mm. lot of this sort of static kind of. It becomes like a like a, a instrument in itself, and and it kind of. I mean, there's a weird sort of misty quality to the camera work, and with this crackle, it just sort of it does kind of work. And then I'll crossfade into my little bit of dialogue, and hope that a uh, hope that the music is not too loud at that point, and make sure that I'm kind of in the right key and the yeah, right sort yeah. of sound world, so that you that my music blends with the tiny little shreds that are left of the original <laughs> score I mean there's one bit where it builds up to a single line of dialogue which is actually I, even the subtitle doesn't tell us what the line is I don't, I don't think anyone really knows she goes like crank or something <laughs> and it's uh, it's at the end of a big long orchestral exposition and it ends with a big brass chord right on her line crank <laughs> So I had to make sure that my I had a big long instrumental exhibition that landed on the same chord. Because <laughs> right. I just go in for that. Shung. It's quite effective, hopefully. Of course, it does mean that the, 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 the live music needs to be absolutely in sync. Yeah. Um, there can't be, I mean, my, my initial idea with it was that, you know, to write a score that could be just a little bit flexible so that, you know, it could be done without click and mm -hmm. just with the conductor watching, you know, and as long as it was sort of mostly in sync, it would all work. But I realized when I was going to use... The, those lines of dialogue, and because because the way that the you know the music interacts with it, it's it's going to have to be absolutely accurate. So we're going to have to do it to, to click track. Mm -hmm. Well, your conductor um, had uh, a good week <laughs> last week. Matthew O'Coin named a MacArthur Fellow, yeah. the Genius Grant, so called, uh, from the MacArthur Foundation. Um, have you worked with him before? I haven't. I haven't met him yet. Very much looking forward to. It. Very thrilled that he's doing it. Yeah. He's a, a wonderful soul and, uh, of course, the artist in residence yeah. for, for this company. So. Yeah. Well, I'm very much looking forward to working with him on this. I hope he approves. I mean, the, we've really... I mostly orchestrate my own music, but sometimes 
I'll, I'll, I'll collaborate with a, with an orchestrator depending on depending on what it is. And I worked on this project with my very close friend Christopher Austin. He recently won the Grammy for um, his wonderful orchestrations of the American in Paris musical that Christopher Wilden did. He has this genius for making a small number of musicians sound like a large number of musicians. And I just, I really pulled him because I just thought, I'd, I'd love to see what he does with this movie. Mm. You know, so we sat down and worked on uh, on the orchestrations ourselves. And um, we've really gone to town on what's kind of possible. What, everything we can pull out of these 14 musicians we have at our disposal, we have. Mm as a really sort of um, avant-garde accordion part and just, you know, really stretching the boundaries with all all the musicians. And, and it's, it's going to be no mean feat for the conductor either. So, <laughs> you know, there's a lot to do. They're not going to get bored, put it that way. <laughs> have you been to the Ace uh, Theatre the theater at the Ace Hotel yet? I, I never have. I, I, um, I know where it is. I've stayed at the Ace. And, of course, I know what it looks like. It's extraordinary it's Art yeah. Deco, you know, extravaganza. And uh, my... My wife went earlier this year to hear um, Paul Thomas Anderson's um, film, the, the Phantom Thread, with Johnny Greenwood's score, which I had seen a few weeks previously with the, with the live orchestra in London, which I thought was great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she came away. She's saying, "You know, you're going to be happy with this venue." <laughs> yes, yes, it's perfect for <laughs> for these these film projects. Um, the The Kronos Quartet did a thing with Philip Glass for Dracula yep. there, and they had the screen as a scrim, yep. so that they were behind the screen. Yes, yeah, are you, I saw them do that in, in London yeah. sometime before. Are you, that, yeah. are you doing it that way, or you have a pit? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't been, I've got a meeting after this uh, with tech people to talk about all that sort of stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I didn't imagine we would. I imagine we'd, we'd, we'd probably put a bit over the top of the positions, but yeah. it would work. Yeah, no, the way the I think with the Chronos Quartet and that Dracula thing, I saw that in London and it really was effective. But I think there's a slightly different dynamic going on with yeah. um, with the because you know as, especially as because I'm keeping the um, the dialogue, the film is the film is more of its own. Yeah, with the, with I think with the Dracula, what they were going for with that scrim thing, which I thought was very effective, was was very much a kind of combination of the of the. The live musicians, Chronos Quartet, being almost actors in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas in this, it's more that the music is kind of commentating on the film. This does feel more like a separate thing. And then, the, and then the, the, you know, the new sound effects I put in, and my symphony of crackles, and the and the dialogue. It, it, that's that's very much fairly squarely with the film. And then the music is almost like a, a separate thing, like kind of watching with us as this weirdness unfolds. But I think it'll work. Anyway, I mean the kind of you know basically the the more um, strange the, the the experience is the better really. Yeah, excellent. Well, we're really looking forward to it um, and appreciate your time. As we wrap up, just um, what do you, what have you got coming up? Um, and if you could pick your next project with no you know restrictions whatsoever, what would what would you be doing? I think I kind of have picked my next project with no restrictions. I've got, I've got some wonderful things coming up. My, my thing I'm writing at the moment is a song cycle which has been premiered at the Victorian Albert Museum in London, setting um, sacred poetry by women from across the ages in this in this 40 minute long um, piece for orchestra, choir, and singers. And then I should be starting work on a new full length opera, which Dallas Opera have commissioned. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what it is, but it's going to be great. <laughs> Working with Gene Shear, with whom I worked on the opera Everest, which um, also for Dallas, also for Dallas, which is uh, is being done um, next in Calgary in February. I'll be going up there for that, and then um, and then I start work on another full length ballet with Christopher Wielden, 
I said one small thing about it to an interview with a, with a regional paper in Oregon where I live half the time, and the next thing, I did, within twenty seconds, I had an email from the from the, from the organisation who I'm not allowed to say. Saying, <laughs> we haven't announced this yet. Please refrain from mentioning to anybody. Okay, well, I mean, we, we wouldn't want to drum up interest in this, would we? I'm being very careful not to do that. Right. Anyway, so yeah, so that's happening. So that's all great. So I've basically got the next at least three years of my life kind of mapped out in front of me working with exactly the people I work, want to work with and the companies I want to work with, with the subject matter I want to work with, and I'm, it's all pretty great. All, I, all that remains for me to do is actually write the music. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you so much. My pleasure. Composer Joby Talbot has written a new score for the 1931 German expressionist film by Carl Theodor Dreyer called Vampire. The premiere takes place at the Theater at the Ace Hotel in downtown Los Angeles on Saturday, October 27 at 8 p.m., with a second performance on Halloween, also at 8 p.m. L.A. Opera's artist-in-residence, Matthew O'Coin, conducts. For all the details, visit laopera.org. This is Behind the Curtain at L.A. Opera. I'm your host, Brian Lauritsen. If you've enjoyed listening to L.A. Opera's Behind the Curtain, you'll want to make sure you don't miss an episode. Please subscribe and leave a rating or review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Don't forget to share this with your friends on Twitter and Facebook, and we'll see you at the opera.